The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, take off your mistletoe hat and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 507 with guest Mike Deeroff, recorded live Tuesday, November 24, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wonders why nobody ever brought him any figgy pudding, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's good to be back with you. Carl and Richard here. Hey, Mr. Campbell. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And uh, what's new with you? Ah, you know, it's good to be home, but it's raining all the time. All the time. You had a you had a bear yesterday in your yard. Yeah, well, that that happens fairly routinely around <laughs> here, actually. And we I were uh, we were recording a show, and you know, we just started, and Rich was like, ah, dang it, this bear in the yard, and your dog's going nuts. He had to wait. Yeah. Well, I go. Well, the funny thing is, the bear, the dog has a distinctive bark that I equate to. Big squirrel, big, big squirrel, <laughs> big <black> squirrel. <laughs> so yeah, I know from the bark, it's a bear. That is so funny. Hey, let's just jump right into Better Know Framework here. All right, Better Know. You know, I haven't really talked about what it is um, in a while. Better Know Framework is a little segment I do on the show where we shine a little light in a dark corner of the .NET framework, just so that you know through osmosis uh, what's there, and you can go look it up for more detailed information. And uh, we're talking about .NET 4 classes now, and this is an interface, iObservable of T. Hmm. What does that do? Well, it just defines a provider for push-based notification. You know, the observer pattern is uh, where it's sort of like a subscription model where, da- where data and notifications most likely get pushed out to the subscriber. So this basically, here's the remarks. The iObserver T and iObservable of T interfaces provide a generalized mechanism for push-based notification, also known as the observer design pattern. The iObservable of T interface represents the class that sends notifications, the provider. The iObserver of T interface represents the class that receives them, the observer. Ah, okay. 
T represents the class that provides the notification information. In some push-based notifications, the I observer of T implementation and T can represent the same type. The provider must implement a single method, subscribe, that indicates that an observer wants to receive push-based notifications. Callers to the method pass an instance of the observer. You know, custom controls that implement uh, event handlers are, are just classic observer pattern. The Windows forms in general. Sure. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. Just a generic way to uh, implement an observer pattern in your code. And now it's new in .NET 4. Awesome. Who's talking to us, Richard? I've got an email whose subject line is crystal ball, time machine, or magic. Hi, Ooh. Carl and Richard. Love the show. Been listening for a while. Not since the start, though. And during show 485 about Team Foundation Server with Steve Borg, I had the scariest situation. Uh-oh. I listen while I'm at work. And at that point, a friend of mine popped up in a chat window to ask about TFS. Huh. What really scared me was my friend's question was, should he wait for TFS 2010 or go with 2008 now? And guess what Steven Borg said about 30 seconds later? What did he say? He answered that question exactly. <laughs> did you use a time machine to plan that? Yeah, we planned that. Now, the funny part is that in those 30 seconds, I told my friend exactly the opposite of what Steve said. Really? I said he should wait for TFS 2010, and here are my reasons. 2010 will be significantly easier to deploy. There will be lots of new features, which will be well worthwhile using. Uh, they may cause some upgrade pains, so that's another reason to stick with 2010 and not go to 2008. The beta version will be out soon, and this email is from a month ago before beta 2 had shipped, so it'll have a go live license, which beta 2 definitely does. Mm-hmm. In, in this case, his friend's deadline for deployment was far enough out that he could wait, and the licensing would be significantly different, and so it might be cheaper to wait. Okay. Now, obviously, this advice is not for everyone. Some people need to deploy 2008 right now, but you should do some investigating. Keep up the excellent work, and thanks a lot for the awesome shows. And that's Robert McLean from South Africa. Awesome. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, thanks, Robert. Yeah. Now, of course, the big thing we have the advantage of now is he wrote this email a while ago, and we now know that uh, a few of these things are you know are different. For example, yeah, 2010 is pretty easy to deploy, but 2008 deployment is well known, and we know the upgrade path is pretty smooth. Very smooth. Uh, we also know that the way they structured the licensing, if you bought a 2008 version now, you'll actually save yourself money because you get an automatic upgrade to 2010, the higher version. That's right. So, so if you're standard, you move to professional. But I, w- I would also point out, and I think Steve Borg alluded to this, which is that most of the challenges around TFS have nothing to do with the version of the product that, at all. That's true. It's TFS itself. It's, it's just learning how to use a different source code controller and a different set of management tools. And there's a lot of things that are different. And mm. While they may be better in 2010, I would think those hurdles are going to be just as hard either way. So it's well worth moving ahead now, especially, I think, more than anything, the licensing deal. Right. Because you just get more. You do for yeah, less money. For less money. So strong incentive. Either way, Rob, I may disagree with you, but I'm sending you a mug. Mug them. It was a great email. So if you've got questions, concerns, ideas about shows, any kind of criticism, we'd love to hear it. Send us an email, rocks at franklins.net. We also haven't mentioned in a while that um, there are some job opportunities here with Infusion Development. We've talked about it before in the past. I don't want to labor it too much, but they have offices in New York City, London, Toronto, and Dubai. And uh, they're a very good company to work with, and they've a lot of .NET Rocks listeners have gone to work for them. So if you're interested in that, I'll tell you more if you send me email, carl at franklins.net. 
we got to talk about my .NET story. Yeah, so if you have a .NET application that has a good story around it, you can go to my.netstory.com and submit your story, and uh, the winner of the contest um, will get either a trip to the Galapagos Islands or a smart car, your choice. And you've already heard a couple of episodes we did at PDC interviewing folks that are already in the contest. Right. But there's still two more weeks to enter the contest. It closes at the end of December. So get on there to my.netstory.com today if you want to get in on the action. Our guest today is Mike Dierolf. He is a software engineer at TenGen, where he works on the MongoDB project. He mainly works on client drivers for Python and Ruby, but also takes time out to talk about MongoDB. He has presented at EuroPython, StrangeLoopConf, Ruby and Rails, Rupee, and RubyConf, as well as meetup groups in New York City, London, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. Mike received a BSE in computer science from Princeton University. Born in Albany, New York, Mike currently resides in New York City. Welcome, Mike. Hi. The only thing I thought of when uh, when I was researching this was Mongo only pawn in Game of Life. <laughs> yes, we uh, we get that a lot. Blind, <laughs> blazing Saddles reference. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so what is MongoDB? MongoDB is an open source, high performance, schema free, document oriented database. So we are certainly buzzword compliant. Um, but I think that <laughs> the, combina- the combination of all of these of all these buzzwords makes for a project that uh, should be interesting to a lot of, especially web developers. So, uh, mm. so, and and we are seeing a lot of interest in the project. So, well, we really haven't talked about big flat files, you know, in uh, on in terms of databases on this show. Maybe a little bit we creeped up on it, Richard. But I think may, mostly most of the time we talk about databases in the .NET world. Anyway, it's SQL Server and relational databases. And this is something totally different, right? So. So MongoDB is is part of a whole whole slew of um, of new non-relational databases that have sort of started to gain a lot of attention recently. Um, and, and I think the reason for that is that there's there's some you know the, the RDBMS has been around for a long time and it's great for a lot of different things. I, I think the paper that introduced the relational model was published 40 years ago in April, so um, it certainly stood the test of time. But but there are, are certainly some shortcomings with the RDBMS. So I think that uh, here at TenGen, what we think we'll see over the next couple of years is less of sort of a one-size-fits-all approach to storing data, which is sort of what we've seen over the over the past couple of decades at least, and uh, more of choosing a, choosing a data storage layer based on the problem at hand. So um, some of the sort of shortcomings that we've seen with the RDBMS are in terms of scalability. So scaling a relational database out vertically is pretty easy. You can you can throw more power at it on a single node, but scaling out horizontally is very difficult. And now let's explain to everybody what the difference is. Okay, so... Um, scale up and scale out, I think is the way. Right, so, so it's pretty easy to scale up, which is using a, a single more powerful machine to, to run your RDBMS. Yeah. Um, but when you want to scale out, so using tens or hundreds or thousands of, uh, you know, more commodity in a cluster uh, machines in, in a clustered setup, it, there are some some major difficulties you run into with the RDBMS, and 
two of the big ones that, that jump out are joins, so handling performing joins in a distributed manner, and also transactions across uh, multiple rows across these these different nodes in your cluster. So you're saying there's overhead involved in doing joins across machines and in doing transactions across machines. Is that weird? Right, and and also it's difficult to maintain uh, some of the ACID properties that are are guaranteed by most relational databases in that distributed setup. So a lot of people already do do some sort of manual distributing of their data. So if you're storing, say, users, you might distribute them across nodes based on the first letter of the username or something like that. Um, but the problem with doing things like that is that you generally do end up giving up some of these, uh, giving up a bunch of the properties that you might have been using the relational database for to begin with. Like I said, like uh, the ACID properties. and So tell uh, us the what ability. the ACID properties are, just, just being clear. Okay, so ACID is this acronym that is, is probably familiar to anybody who's taken a database class. It's sort of one of the fundamental things you, um, you learn about in terms of databases. And what it stands for is atomicity, consistency, isolation, and durability. And it's, it's basically this set of four properties that, um, that a lot of people expect from, from, a, from a database. And most RDBMSs provide these, these four properties. And a lot of uh, a lot of these newer systems are actually relaxing some of these guarantees in order to achieve uh, you know new benefits in terms of scalability or flexibility. You know, it's funny. I mean, a lot of developers today have only ever lived in their relational database model because it's been around since the middle '80s, really. And and so they right. they they take acid for granted. They don't even know what it is anymore. It's just always been there. I just wonder about the consequences of being a little looser with it, as which is definitely the direction we seem to be going in. Right. Yeah. No. This it certainly takes some getting used to. Um, I think one thing that that's actually nice about MongoDB is that it tends to sort of bridge the gap between. Um, some like key like a key value store, which is one sort of data model that's become popular with these new systems. Um, and I think it's, and I think that data model is popular because it's pretty easy to to scale out and to get this the sort of horizontal scalability thing right with just a key value model. Um, and MongoDB sort of does a little bit more to bridge the gap between a model like that and an RDBMS that you're used to using. So, like you said, there's certainly some um, some overhead in terms of mental overhead that you have to just get used to working with a new tool like this. Um, but I think that MongoDB does a pretty decent job of of doing things in a way that's fairly familiar to people who are used to working with an RDBMS. So I can hear just hordes of listeners out there who have never even considered using anything but a relational database, uh, just trying to trying to be sold on the on the on the idea of not having those relationships. How on earth does, you know, your typical business application where there are relationships all over the place between this data, how does that, how does that work in a flat method, in a flat file structure? So MongoDB is sort of interesting. It doesn't, it doesn't really use a flat file structure. So um, in MongoDB, you work with these JSON-style documents. So we don't, the database doesn't actually store JSON. It stores 
a binary representation of JSON data. So it's, it's sort of like a lightweight binary encoding of regular JSON. Um, okay. And, and this is nice because not only can your JSON documents contain keys and values, which you can treat more or less like columns in a regular um, relational database, but also you can have whole embedded documents. So if you're thinking about a model for, say, like a blog post, you can embed comments documents directly within that post. And the nice thing about that is that if you're able to structure your data in that way, then you no longer even need to perform any sort of join operation at all because when you go to get the post, all of your comments are right there with it, embedded in the document. Well, what if you're trying to do like a more advanced query where you're trying to find, oh, I don't know, a whole bunch of users that have certain fields set a, a certain way or, you know, well, multiple criteria. Can you do that kind of stuff? Right. So, yeah, so there's actually um, a pretty nice query query language, basically. Uh, we don't... So MongoDB doesn't use SQL. Um, so if you if you really need to use SQL for, for your problem, if you're using some tool that generates SQL or something like that, then MongoDB probably isn't a good option. But... Um, we do have a pretty a pretty nice query API, and the way it works is basically when you insert, you're inserting these these JSON documents using the C# -sharp driver. There's a document class which just looks like a dictionary, and and so you're basically inserting these dictionaries. And um, when you go to do a query, the way it works is you the, the, in the simplest case, you give it another document that contains some fields that you're looking for. So if you wanted to find a query for a user where the username is Mike, you would just give it a document with just that field, just username set to Mike, and it would only return the documents that match. So, and, and you can, like you said, you can build up more complicated queries. So you can search on multiple keys at once. You can have, you know, do range queries and uh, sorting, limiting, uh, skipping results, a lot of stuff that you'd expect to be able to do uh, with regular SQL queries on an RDBMS. But the actual syntax here seems so much more like the old-style thumbing through a file kind of thing. You're doing a for-each loop looking for certain conditions. Right. So um, so on the, on the client side, you'll, you'll iterate over the results, but on the server side, it's you know, taking advantage of indexes, and uh, you know, there's B-tree indexes. You can define secondary indexes just like you would in you know, MySQL or... or uh, SQL Server or whatever else, and um, so you know you're still leveraging all all of that. Sure. Okay. In, in terms of the API, yeah, I, I think in general, again, I'm not too too familiar with the C# -sharp driver. That the C# -sharp driver is pretty nice, and actually, for those of you listening, you can get to it at uh, bit.ly/mongo-c-sharp, and it's on it's on GitHub. I just set up a short URL for it. Um, and I'm not too, too familiar with the API there, but in general, the APIs for most of the drivers look like that. So you do a find query and uh, give it a document that matches your results, and you can then iterate over all of the matching documents. So, I mean, we're still just getting our head around the whole NoSQL approach to this thing. Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know if I'm convinced, and I know there's a lot of listeners that are 
still trying to wrap their heads around it. The, the first thing that I think of here is that I don't have to decompose my object into a set of SQL statements to write it out and then recompose it when I need it back. I'm pretty much able to hand it as is in JSON notation to MongoDB. Right. But I, but I think that, uh, you know, so that's how the query, that's how the query language works. But I think that some, some of the more important benefits are, um, in terms of scalability and performance, you can expect uh, much higher much higher performance and, and scalability with MongoDB than you would with a traditional relational database, and that's because we are simplifying some of uh, some of the assumptions that you get with a relational database. But there's also this this gain in terms of flexibility. So traditionally, with a relational database, you'll you'll you know define a table and specify the columns you want, um, and you know this column is going to be an integer and this column is going to be a varchar or whatever else. Right. And with MongoDB, it doesn't work like that. So the database is completely schema-free. And what we mean when we say schema-free is that you can insert documents of any shape into the same collection. So this is very nice for, um, for sort of agile development. Um, and it, it tends to be actually pretty easy for... Um, for users of dynamically typed languages to get their head around, right. for for statically typed languages it works great too. But I think that there's sometimes there's a little bit more of a um, a gap in terms of getting your getting your mind around it. Um, but it, it's one of the really nice benefits of doing things this way is that a lot of migrations then become pretty trivial. So if you just want to add a new uh, field to your documents, you can do so without having to run a full table migration or anything like that. And so, you know, we have some systems that have been in production on running MongoDB for a couple of years now, and I think that the developers working on those have, have seen that probably around 90% of the migrations that they would have been doing, they no longer even have to worry about. So, um, so, so there is some benefits in terms of flexibility in, t- in addition to the benefits in, in scalability and performance. And you could still query into that that document. It's not just the key you fetch against. You can go search for anything within the document as well. Right. So that's the, that's the big difference between MongoDB and which we call a, a document, document-oriented database okay. and something like a, one of these key value stores like Redis or Tokyo Cabinet or, or whatever else. And with the key value stores, it's sort of like what you're used to with something like memcache. You can put and get on a single key. Yeah. And with MongoDB, since your documents are these more complex JSON-style documents, but we're encoding them to a binary format that the database understands and knows how to reach into, you're able to do things like define secondary indexes on, on different keys in your documents. You're able to do queries on all the different keys in your documents, including any embedded documents that you might have. And so you're able to get a lot of the functionality that that you're used to from working with tables and that sort of stuff. Well, it sounds almost like it it is relational. I mean, relational in the way that documents can relate to each other by a set of keys that that they are related. So so a lot of... um, in a lot of cases, like I said, there's there's sort of two ways to do relationships in MongoDB. So, so the first way is to do this embedded document thing, and that's what I talked about um, earlier in terms of a blog and comments, and a blog post and comments. And that's really great if you can pull it off. That that works great for certain use cases, like a a one-to-many relationship or something like that. 
And if you can do that, that's really great because you can see incredible performance um, improvements over something like MySQL, where, where you would generally have two tables and be doing a join. Um, but you can also sort of do a more traditional relationship where you'll store your post and then within that post store IDs that point to different comments, which are stored in a separate collection. A collection is pretty much the equivalent in MongoDB of a table. So you can do things that way and then uh, do pretty much what are the equivalent to client-side joins. And that works as well. And a lot of people use some combination of those two approaches. Okay. So how does joining work in this scenario then? So we don't, we don't do any um, join server-side for you. Right. Uh, some of the drivers have facilities to do client-side joins for you automatically. Um, but the reason we don't support it in the server is, like I said, that is, that is very difficult to sort of scale out this, right. distributed join, this distributed join problem. And if you're going to start going down the joining path, you might as well be using SQL. Right, right. But you're not, you're not pulling da- all sorts of data over to the client and then making associations and filtering on that side, are you? You're not, like, moving all, all the data over, right? Well, it, it depends on what you're talking about. So if you're talking about doing, doing a client-side join where, where you have, say, authors and blog posts, then, yeah, you're getting a blog post and you have some author ID, and then you're, you're doing a separate query to get that author back. And, um, and like I said, that, that's sort of essential in order, to be able to do, in order to be able to scale this out horizontally. Uh, but, but no, in, in the general case, you, you're doing these complicated queries on the server side. So if you want to query for blogs that, blog posts that were made you know, in the month of September 2008, you can easily set up a query that runs on the server side and takes advantage of uh, any indexes you've defined and, and that sort of stuff. Hmm. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, who bring you the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC. The extensions bring rich UIs to your MVC application. These are just announced, and this time they're not standard web forms controls tailored for MVC, but native, built-from-the-ground-up MVC components. There's three important things to remember. One, they're pure ASP.NET MVC components. Two, they're based on jQuery. And third, and this is the best part, they're completely open source. Just go to www.telerik.com slash MVC for more information and online demos. Make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Do you see cases where folks are using, and I could see the advantage of MongoDB on this typical client app where, like you said, it's a, the blog post comment model. You got a sort of parent-child relationship, but instead of breaking it out into different tables and having to constantly decompose and recompose it, you're just storing it as the document that it is. And the only struggle you have with that is when you get into more complex reporting scenarios. You know, if I'm thinking about an invoice, I might have the invoice header and its line items, but then I want to aggregate all of the sales of a particular product across a, a longer range thing. Right. So, so I think uh, in general, we, we do see people doing some combination of the two. Um, and there's, you know, for any app, there's, there's going to, in general, be some cases where you can't get away with doing this embedded document thing that I mentioned. And the reason that it tends to be okay to be doing client-side joins like that is because MongoDB tends to be very high performance. So single-node performance tends to be much better than, 
say, MySQL or something like that. A lot of people are using MongoDB as a caching layer for their applications. Hmm. Uh, sort of, it's nice because you get some of these advanced uh, querying capabilities more so than you have with something like Memcache. But MongoDB uses memory map files, so it tends to be perform on a, on a level about as high as Memcache in simple cases. So, um, so yeah, so doing these client-side joins tends to not be uh, not be, you know, prohibitively expensive. So, again, if you can get away with doing embedded documents, that's better. But in most applications, I think there's going to be at least a couple of cases where you need to do something like this. I'm starting to think of this from a hybrid point of view. You know, on one hand, I've built apps that had to scale really large, and the cost to write back to SQL Server and even read from SQL Server was one of the largest expenses in the whole app. And so the idea that I could use MongoDB to lighten that load on the day-to-day, you know, during-the-day kind of work is a good idea. But at the same time, I need to do analytics on it later, and I've got this great relational infrastructure to do that. So what if I did both? What if during the day I'm using MongoDB for all of my work, and at the end of the day when we sort of round out the whole day, I go through and enumerate all that data and pump it back to SQL Server? I mean, that's definitely possible. Um, we see a lot of people using, especially bigger production deployments, uh, using a hybrid approach, not necessarily with the same data in both systems, but a lot of times, you know, big clients come along and they have legacy data already in, you know, SQL Server and then go up, go ahead and start implementing new features on top of MongoDB. So I see. still using it in, in this hybrid mechanism. That works great. For for something like you're saying, for doing sort of aggregation and stuff, um, there there is some built-in aggregation functionality. In the newer development releases, we even added sort of full MapReduce support to MongoDB, so you can map and reduce over all the documents in your collection. So there is there is a capability to do some advanced aggregation, and and you could set up something like what you're talking about, where you have sort of one production server running a MongoDB instance that you're doing your normal queries, um, you know, for the day-to-day operations of your website or whatever. And you could have a slave that's slaving off of that. So MongoDB has built-in replication support, um, master slave, and also this mode we call replica pairs, where you have two nodes, and at any time one is a master and one is a slave, and the drivers automatically know how to do failover between the two. Right. But anyway, so you could set up a slave and then run more complex aggregation like MapReduce or we have sort of limited group by support um, on a nightly basis on that. Sure. Yeah, just to crank the aggregates out. You know, what's interesting here is the idea that I might go from MongoDB directly to OLAP and never stop in a relational database along the way. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think it's... I haven't seen really any of these larger production deployments that are actually storing the same data in MongoDB as in a relational database. Right. In a lot of this sort of hybrid approach. Well, yeah, most of the time we don't need all the detailed data. It's just that's what we start with and then roll it up into the forms we need it. So this would cut that interim step up. Right. And and one of the nice things about um, using MongoDB for something like that is that, like I said, performance in general tends to be very good, but insert performance especially tends to be really, really good. Um, so we've seen a lot of cases where people are using MongoDB for things that you might not normally you might normally think a database is too heavyweight for. So 
things like real-time analytics or logging right. um, per, per request. It tends to be great for those sorts of applications. Is, is the real reason to go down this route all about performance, or is there other solves here that, that uh, it, it really works with? No, to, to be honest, I think that a lot of what we're seeing, um, certainly, certainly performance is a great reason to use it, and there are some, some people who are using it probably strictly because they can get more performance out of it. But I think that a, a, lot of, a lot of people are using it for these gains in flexibility that I talked about. So um, first of all, it tends to be very, it, it's pretty easy to get started with. Um, the API tends to click pretty quickly. And like I said, it's not too huge of a jump from, uh, you know, the typical relational database to using MongoDB. Mm-hmm. But also this, this schema free thing uh, tends to be very nice for doing development. So we're seeing a lot of, you know, smaller, smaller applications that people are developing, one-off things or small startup companies that are using MongoDB because it allows you know, for much quicker turnover in terms of developing a new application. And it's, yeah, it's the same reason that folks switched to Ruby and, and other loosely typed languages like this, because it was so quick to do that kind of development. Right. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, honestly, some of the more active users of MongoDB right now have been in these, uh, dynamic language communities like mm-hmm. Ruby and, right. and Python. That makes sense. Um, I know you're not really into, uh, .NET so much, so I can't really ask you the burning questions, which are how would I interface with uh, with .NET? But do you know do you know what the interface is? Yeah, so so right now we have uh, there's a community project. I mean, obviously, if you're using something like Iron Ruby or Iron Python, you could use the Ruby and Python driver directly uh, in there. I haven't tested that, but both of those are you know it's a pure Python driver and a pure Ruby driver, so those should work fine. Um, but there's also this C sharp driver that. Uh, has been written by Samuel Corder, and uh, like I said, that's on GitHub. But the URL is bit.ly/mongocsharp, and it's it, it's really nice. Um, it supports almost completely everything that all of this sort of more official drivers support, and uh, and Sam has done a great job with it. I, it's it's also a link provider, so that's pretty cool as well. Um, I'm not sure. I think that the link support is probably a little bit more experimental, but uh, certainly moving forward, that that would be a great way to interface with .NET stuff as well. Okay. In terms of the API, it's pretty similar to the way the rest of the drivers work. So there's there's a document class, and like I said, that's it, it's subclasses from dictionary base. So it, it basically you you interact with it like you would a dictionary. Okay. And uh, and then there's a collection class, and so you can do things like inserting documents into the collection. You do queries directly on that collection instance, on a collection instance, um, and and all of the sort of stuff that you see if you go to the MongoDB.org site. Most right. of the tutorials there are written in JavaScript, and the reason for that is that we provide sort of this JavaScript admin console with all of the distributions. And that's really nice for doing, you know, quick administration tasks and one-off, one-off scripts and that sort of stuff. So, um, so all of the, all of, most of the documentation is written for that in JavaScript, but the APIs tend to be very similar across languages. So, um, from the looks of it, it should be, 
translating any of that documentation to C sharp driver should be pretty trivial. Like I said, Sam's done a done a great job so far in uh, in making a complete driver. So I'm actually looking at Sam's uh, project here, MongoDB yeah. C sharp. Me too. He he's got a set of link drivers as well. Yeah, so that's what I mentioned. Yeah, yeah you mentioned it's, uh, it's a link provider. So um, so that's great. And and like I said, I'm not sure exactly how complete the link stuff is. I know that was added relatively recently, but mm-hmm. uh, but moving forward, that you know that should be really good. And just to set the story straight, this is um, open source. Yeah. So everything. Uh, so it, it looks like Sam's C sharp driver is Apache or Apache two. And all of the other MongoDB more official drivers are all Apache 2. Um, and MongoDB itself, the server process is AGPL. But yeah, it's all open source. And, and there's a pretty big community around everything now. So it's, it's been great to see that. So how does 10Gen make a living? Right. So I, really right now, um, we're venture funded and right now we're really just focused on building out the product and building up the community. And I think we've been doing, doing a pretty good job on both of those fronts over the past year or so. Um, like I said, we've seen a, a lot of growth in community and a lot of interest in MongoDB. Um, in terms of monetizing this at some point, uh, I think there's a lot of room to provide things like commercial support, uh, custom development, all sorts of value adds on top. But, MongoDB itself is it's an open source project and and it will always be open source. So right, and this is that classic model of you know you're working on the product, so you guys are the experts in it, and you and you provide support and consulting around that. Exactly, exactly. So you know we you know there are like I said, there's a, a big contributor base already, but I think we're still sort of the experts on on the internals and everything. So I think there's going to be lots of opportunities to provide value based on that. So Daryl Basanjo has been working with it. It looks like. Yeah, so I I haven't seen uh, the full. Who's I haven't tracked the the contributors to this C sharp driver too too much, but uh, well, he just did a blog post on it. I'm I'm just linking from the C sharp page. Um, but it, okay. it it looks pretty good. The No SQL movement versus abusing relational databases for fun and profit. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and you, and you bring up a great point there, Carl, which is just this idea that. The relational databases have been so dominant. I think they've yeah. been too dominant yeah. to the point where people literally yeah, abuse them for their stores. I think one of the great examples of yeah. that is something I do every day, which is storing session data in a SQL Server database. Like, it's right. crazy. It I have this huge, crazy. smart database, and here I am saying, here, hold this glob of data. Okay, right. now give it back. And I'll hold it again. Perfectly good operating system that has a the file naming scheme seem, uh, system and directories and all that kind of stuff, which is much faster. Yeah, but ultimately, yeah. File, hard drives are serial. And so eventually, file systems break down. This memory mapped file approach is the fastest thing you could possibly mm. do. But it has its own consequences. And I got to think the biggest battle here, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, is reliability. That if once I go to memory map file, if that machine takes a header for whatever reason, I've lost a lot of data. Right. So, uh, so yeah. So you are going to. We are depending on the on the OS to manage when these memory map files get flushed to disk, uh, and so there is there you know there are some windows there where we don't provide this sort of full durability guarantee that that you might be used to with a relational database. Our approach to that so far, I, I think there's going to be some work done 
over the next couple of months on, on improving the durability guarantees that, that MongoDB makes. But our approach to that so far has been uh, really replication. So we have really good replication support now, and right. you know it's fully produ- it's fully production quality. And so, so the approach is really get these changes in memory somewhere, and and then it'll get to disk eventually. Um, hmm. I think there's going to be work done to improve uh, single node, you know, on disk durability in the in the future it's just it hasn't been a real focus yet but in the in the re, in the replication model are you saying the moment it gets written into memory on one machine you're pumping it to another machine no so replication in mongodb is is asynchronous as well so uh, the way replication works is that we basically store you know an operation log on the master and there's a sort of dynamic window for how often the slave pings the master and gets all of the updates so uh, yeah, replication is also asynchronous. So I was just looking at Ode to Code. That's uh, K. Scott Allen's blog. We hung out with him in uh, Sweden and uh, at Ordev and at the PDC. Uh, and I shrinksterized the link to it. Shrinkster.com slash 1BRE. Bravo. R. <laughs> I can't remember the names. Uh, what is what is R, Richard? Romeo. Yeah, Romeo and Oscar. No, no, E is Edgar. One Bravo Romeo Edgar uh, experimenting with MongoDB from C Sharp. And there's some comments on this blog, which is blog post, which he said, which uh, a guy named Developing Chris says at his company, one of the engineers from SourceForge presented on the fact that they are completely running on MongoDB now. He showed benchmarks from MySQL, Mongo, Couch, and six other ones that he doesn't have notes on. The short story is that Mongo outperformed all of them by hundreds of percent of transactions. It even seemed to scale much closer to linear on inserts when approaching one million documents in the database. Those are pretty nice numbers. Yeah, so uh, SourceForge is one of the bigger production deployments that we know of right now um, using MongoDB, at least at least large in terms of notoriety and, and in terms of you know requests number of requests that they get and that and that sort of stuff um and they that was that was great they emailed us back in may and said that they did you know a full evaluation of this space and decided on mongodb and i think it was you know about a month later that they had uh fully migrated everything over so, so they moved quickly over there i guess do you know where they came from um no i'm not to be honest i'm not sure what they were using for it was it was a relational database I think yeah. I, I assume MySQL. Probably yeah. MySQL. Uh, Probably MySQL. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like we've got a lot of this performance just coming from simplicity. You can't get yourself in much trouble. It makes me wonder if you if you just use the SQL database the way that MongoDB writes data. Say, in, like in SQL Server, we have the XML structure. We could stuff everything in XML that way and just have this sort of big table approach. Would you get comparable results? Yeah. So I, I think that. A lot of the a lot of the people who are switching are people who have sort of got themselves into corners where they are using uh, a relational database the way that we use MongoDB. So right, insert, having having columns that you know a column key and a, and a separate column value and and inserting stuff that way so that they get dynamic schemas and. And all sorts of sort of crazy stuff like that. Yeah, so, I, I, um, now in reflection, I suddenly realized I just described your perfect customer. 
You know, a guy who is taken, you know, abusing SQL servers, as Dare says, right? We're going down this funny path and you just shouldn't be here in the first place. Well, and also just the the whole scale out thing is what what really the focus is on. I mean, the performance seems to be incredible. Yeah, so single single load performance tends to be pretty good. And and like I said, we've got this auto sharding layer, which is now in alpha. Uh, The core server process and the replication stuff is all production quality, and that's used in production at a ton of places. You can go, um, if you go to mongodb.org and search for production deployments, you'll see a list of, of everybody we know of that's using it in production. But the, shard, the sharding stuff, the, the horizontal, automatic horizontal scaling stuff, is in alpha right now. So that's, that's under very active development. Um, but we, we should be seeing some hopefully a beta release around the end of the year and uh, and moving that towards production throughout the new year, I guess. Well, and that sounds to me like federation in SQL Server, where I have multiple servers and pieces of the, of a, the same table are distributed across them. There's no duplication of data between them. Each one owns a different chunk of the same table. Right. That's, that's pretty much exactly the concept. Uh, the advantage of doing it in this way is that... Um, it, there's there's docs on on how sharding the, what the sharding model is in MongoDB, but the nice thing about it is that what data w- lives where is all dynamic. So basically, MongoDB can handle automatically rebalancing things for you um, across nodes and moving data around in between shards automatically. So that's something that's difficult. In like I said, a lot of people are sort of doing this manually with. Uh, you know, taking the modulo of some ID, unique ID when they go to insert data or something like that to decide which shard to insert it on. And, um, and so doing things in this automatic fashion allows for, for a lot of benefits. Another benefit is that, uh, sharding in MongoDB is order preserving. So if there's data that's got a, you know, that's close in value, then it's going to be likely that it's on the same server. And that allows us to do things like range queries and sorting fast even in a sharded setup. Right. So you're, yeah, that's it. I was just going to ask that question of how do you decide where you're going to put stuff, but putting related values together means that your indexes work. You go to one place for that, for the same set of data. Right. So the, yeah, so each, each uh, individual shard still maintains, you know, a full complement of indexes like you would have on a single node. But yeah, it, basically the way it works is that you specify a key in your document that you're going to split things up by. And we divide up the value space for that key into discrete chunks. And each of those chunks lives on a shard. And so that way, if you're doing a range, a range query, we know which shards, you know, might have matching data. And we right. can only go, we can only look at, you know, a small subset of the total number of shards. But the nice, the nice thing is that it's totally dynamic. So, uh, if a single chunk gets too big, we can split that and move it to a new shard. And and you're replicating the indexes for the entire structure across all of the machines. Right. So the queries basically is a single lightweight process that we call Mongo S. Which the S stands for shard. And that, that you can think of that as pretty much like a lightweight database router. And given a query, that can tell you where the where the data possibly lives and it distributes that query out to you know some number of shards 
each of which has indexes which can do the query fast locally and then send the results back where they get aggregated. And then you combine this with the replication model and you eventually have effectively have got RAID 10 on your data. Huh. Right. So, yeah. Interesting. So the idea is that we sort of treat um, replication as separate from sharding. The replication is for failover and the sharding is for distributing like this. So, yeah, you, you combine them both. But it still doesn't, you know, I, I'm just showing how old I am, but I remember when relational databases were first coming down the pipe and the great demo was this durability of if you see the query come back with, I've got it, you could yank the power plug out of the server. And when you powered it back up, the data was there no matter what. It was absolutely right, that's reliable. That's certainly true. Um, but I think that, you know, we have our, our own data centers that we run, um, some of the some of the people involved in Tengen are are also involved in a couple of uh, you know other large web web more web application type type companies and so they're running you know large data centers and I think that what they've seen is that it's not often that the power plug gets yanked on your server or that the you know server crashes for one reason or another. The vast majority of the failures that they've seen are uh, disk failures and. If you have a disk failure, it doesn't matter, you know, how many times you've written it to disk. It doesn't matter what your uh, right. durability guarantees are. You still lost the data. So. Right. Yep. So, that, so that's that's really why our approach, so far at least, has been really focused on, on replication. Um, with, like I said, with the idea to get things in memory somewhere, and then, and then if it's in memory somewhere, it'll get to disk. And yeah, that's safe enough. Well, and they get back to this idea that why am I punishing every transaction for the one in a hundred million risk? Right, right. So exactly. And, and it is this loosening of guarantees that enables us to, you know, have such high performance. Hmm. Yeah. And you just got to deal with thinking through the, we deal with the same battle in caching in general. True. Yeah. I was just going to say that is the caching problem. Yeah. Described. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's, a, that's another very good point. So a lot of be, a lot of people are taking things like, you know, MySQL or SQL server and putting something like memcache in front of it. And when you do that, you, you run into a lot of the same issues in that you're inherently sort of relaxing this acid guarantee. And, uh, so, so doing that, doing caching in a way that maintains these acid properties is a pretty difficult problem as well. Yeah, I imagine. Absolutely. So we back to the hybrid model. I use MongoDB on the front side for reads and write back directly to the SQL server so that that part, the writes are reliable, but the reads can be much faster and lighter. Yeah, that's, that's one option. Um, basically, the way writes work in, in MongoDB is that um, by default, all inserts and updates are pretty much completely asynchronous. There's just no response from the server at all. So, so you can get really, if you if you want to do things like logging, you can get really fast write performance by just sort of firing messages off and then forgetting about them and moving on. Um, but most of the drivers also support this safe mode, which basically uh, does does sends a write but piggybacks on the same packet a message that says, you know, hey, did you get this message? Hey, did, did it write successfully? And so most of them support this safe mode. Again, you're not, you're not, since we're just writing to a memory map file, you're not guaranteed that things got written to disk, but you then get, improve the guarantees somewhat, because then you're, you're at least guaranteed that things 
went away in terms of the MongoD process that you talked to. Um, and we're thinking about providing some capability to basically do send a command that would basically do a full f-sync and then lock the database for writes. So the nice thing about having that would be if you're running on hardware like Amazon DBS or something that supports sort of instantaneous backups, you could do this full f-sync, take a snapshot, and unlock the database, and it would you know all be pretty much instantaneous. So again, that that would you'd be able to you know do some sort of hybrid and, and improve durability guarantees somewhat. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I imagine our, a, a lot of our listeners are, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I'd be really interested to hear what people think about this and not just people who have used MongoDB too, but, uh, you know, a, a C, your typical SQL server based development guy, you know, or gal, send us an email. Let us know what you think. Yeah, I, I certainly think, um, like I said, we're not expecting this to replace everywhere where we currently use relational databases. I don't think that makes sense. But but we do think that there are a lot of applications where something like this uh, can be a better fit than an RDBMS. And so what we expect to see is, like I said, sort of more of a divergence where people are choosing different data storage solutions in, you know, for different problems instead of what we currently see, which is, you know, everything looks like a nail for... Right. For MySQL or SQL Server or whatever else. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time. Is there any last-minute things you want to throw out there or uh, shout-outs or resources you can point us to? Yeah, so I think the, the main resource is mongodb.org. That's M-O-N-G-O-D-B.org. And I think the biggest thing is that I would encourage anybody who listened, you know, especially... Like you said, some people might not be might not be believing or buying into some of the stuff that I've said, but I would encourage people to go to the site and, and take a look and download it. So there, it's very easy to get get set up and running. We have binaries for Windows 32 and 64-bit, Linux, OS X, um, Solaris. So it's, it's easy to get the server set up and running and you know check it out and play with it a bit. Go through the tutorial or something, and then more importantly, let us know what you think. So. Uh, we know what to work on. But yeah, thanks for your time. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 